0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, today's episode is going to be with Bruce Heppner of Heppner Golf Design. Bruce is in town doing some restoration work at the club that we play at Tim Aquana Country Club here in Jacksonville, and uh, has an impressive resume of uh, working in on golf courses basically most of his adult life. And for the last almost thirty years, he was worked with Tom Doak for seventeen years. You'll hear all about that on the podcast, and he's been. All over the world, lived in all kinds of different places, worked on Ballyneal, Cape Kidnappers, Pacific Dunes, Renaissance Club. I mean, we we could have done a lot more than one hour on just all the places he's been and places he's worked and the stories and whatnot. But I wanted to do, do a New Zealand episode. Uh, I was on that part of the trip uh, solo. If you guys have seen the, our Tourist Sauce series, if you have not seen that, I, I do recommend you check that out on YouTube. Eight episodes, six of them in Australia, two in New Zealand uh, we also have a podcast that summarized the Australia leg, but haven't really broke down the New Zealand leg. Thought uh, Bruce would be great to talk to you on that since he was uh, basically in charge of building Cape Kidnappers. Uh, he's played down at Terra Edie, and he's been up to Kari Cliffs and has all kinds of stories about New Zealand as well. Uh, so that's kind of included within this, but also we talk about Pacific Dunes and experience out there at Bandon and all kinds of stuff. And uh, man, Bruce has Bruce seen a lot. And I know I know I've learned a heck of a lot about golf course architecture from Andy Johnson at the Friday and uh, from being fortunate enough to play at a lot of really cool places in the last couple of years. So it's, it's really informative at least for me to sit down with a guy like Bruce, get his feedback on his philosophy on golf courses and, And design and restoration and all that so uh, I really enjoyed talking with him I think you guys will enjoy it as well I learned a heck of a lot in the process and I imagine that uh, you guys will too so um, uh, thank you for tuning in and I think this is something you you guys will enjoy before we get started really quick want to give a shout out to our friends at Travis Matthew our our main uh, our main man Joe sent over sent us a package here at the Kill House that was not expecting it just showed up one day it was addressed, it had my name on it. It's, 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 it was addressed to me. And by the time I got to the box, there was only a couple items left in it since the crew just ravaged through them, uh, picking out a bunch of stuff. They sent us a couple expat shirts, um, which are their, their polo shirt, which can be worn on the golf course, off the golf course. If, if you're tuning to the live show, you're going to see that I'm pretty much rocking Travis Matthews stuff in about 90% of the shots here. I wear their shorts every single day, their t shirts are my favorite. Uh, they, the Scully athletic shirt is one of my favorites. And then they got a recline athletic shirt, the, the streak shirt. I mean, this is, this is what I, we wear off the golf course. And you can also wear the shorts are, yeah, perfect for off the golf course and on the golf course as well. So go to travismatthew.com and check those out. The uh, summer has not left yet. You can still get plenty of wear out of the uh, short sleeve and short stuff. So without further ado, here is our podcast with Bruce Hepner. Thanks for tuning in. All right, Bruce, we don't do uh, a ton of golf course specific architecture on this podcast, but I uh, couldn't resist the opportunity to chat with you while you're in town here at Tim Aquana. So what brings you here? What brings you in town? What are what's the purpose of your visit here? Well, I've been working with Tim Aquana Country Club for the last couple of
1: years. And we did an extensive project last winter restoring many of the classic features of down Ross rebuilding the bunkers. Uh, we're back. Building a few tees this week and kind of connecting some chipping areas between some greens. So just back in for the week, dropping down from Traverse City and uh, getting a little bit of work done.
0: How's the project? How's the plan like this work? Do you kind of make a proposal of what kind of changes you'd like to make? Does the club approach you and say, this is what we want to do? How did you end up getting this engagement and what, uh, what are the steps in that process like? It's a little bit of both. You know, my reputation is uh, now as, as a
1: consultant, uh, I work at restoring old golf courses. Of all types, all different uh, architects. And so when they called me, I think they got references from different clubs that uh, I was worked at a few Ross courses around the country, quite a few. And so I came in for the interview. And, and a lot, you know when I interview clubs, it's a, it's a push pull a little bit. It's like, what do you want? And uh, and to me, it's investigating wh- where they are, where were they at one time, and is it wor- what's worthy of bringing back?
0: when it comes to restoration and it seems to be clubs almost every historic club in some capacity is going through some kind of restoration why why are do golf clubs need restored what happens to golf courses over time that requires a restoration
1: i think it's you know one one there wasn't a big reverence for the original architects until probably in the 90 early 90s when, when you know when i came into the business uh, a lot of us younger architects started real studying great old courses you know i work for tom doke and he has traveled the world and You realize that, you know, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of courses were remodeled or modernized. And so they were remodeled just for the sake of either harder or different. And they didn't really know who Donald Ross was. So there wasn't a lot of reverence to the original architect. So then, you know, we're studying some of these old drawings. And we're like, man, these courses were pretty good back then. And they really didn't need to be changed. Or, you know, neglect like World War II, you know, filled in a lot of bunkers. Um, So the more we study... Now, when you think of Donald Ross and Alistair McKenzie and El- Albert Telling us these great architects, they're so great, you know. And, and they they came out of that classic period, which was real strategic. They fit the golf course into the land, and so a lot of the restoration is putting back what they had originally done because it's still relevant today. You know, um, most you know, golf has changed a bit for really good players, but for the rest, of, you know, our average handicap at a club is an eighteen. Now and was back then, so the courses are really relevant when you
0: when you restore the features. It's got to be, and the challenge you guys face these days with the modern equipment really, really, really helping the top, most talented players, and not really changing the game too much for the middle handicappers means you got to almost design two golf courses in one.
1: That's true, and then you have to find out like, who who are the great players going to play your golf course. Right, you know I've, I've worked at probably you know, I probably have forty great old classic clubs, and we've had a lot of state amateurs and. and uh, good events and I was telling them what was the last score in a really good amateur event and somebody might have shot close to par maybe a little higher and that's about it so it's not it's not like it, unless you have the tour coming to town um, these courses are really relevant for your average really good amateur player and they hold up really you know that's 6300 yards they hold up because the greens are really good you can tuck the pins and they're not they're not destroying these golf courses so it's you have to pick and choose when you're restored who you're modernizing for or we are worried about how the best players are and sometimes they're not that good
0: what is in your restoration work what is what takes the most amount of time or what is the most familiar i guess symptom of golf course erosion over time is it shrinking of greens is it restoring bunkers what do you typically kind of specialize in i guess in that it's, regard it's a little bit of everything but it's mostly trees yeah <laughs>
1: yeah it's uh restoring the wits You know, the widths of the fairways to bring the bunkers back into play because they were out there. You know, back in the old days, they used to gang mode fairways. They were 40, 50, 60 yards wide, and the bunkers were out there on the edge. Then you get to a golf course and they're 25 yards wide, and the bunkers are irrelevant because they're way out in the rough. Um, But it's a lot because of the tree lines. The trees have grown. You know, in the 60s, especially in the north, we lost our elm trees. American elm was a great American golf tree. High canopy, beautiful tree, and Dutch elm took them out. So... A lot of clubs panicked and they planted for their generations, they planted Norway spruces, you know, soft maples that now, you know, they were playing in the 60s. Now they're dying off, you know, because their life expectancy is. So a lot of it's tree management, it's mowing management, getting the greens back out to the original sizes. That's probably the most important thing you do.
0: When it comes to tree management, uh, maybe that's not the the issue that you run into the most with members. But I think, you know, people like their golf. A lot of members like a golf course the way that, that it is, and it's expensive to take trees out. Or I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. It's expensive to t- take trees out and whatnot. But I think when it comes to like a an old course like Tim Aquana, it was built in 1923. That did not look like it currently does in the 20s. Right when Donald Ross laid this out, it was not. There's no the, these trees were not this size. Right. So how do that's you correct. how do you is it a difficult battle that you face in trying to convince people, like, this, this is not the original, I guess, intent of this golf course was to have this overgrown with trees?
1: It's just a struggle. It's the hardest thing we do, but it's, you know, I build it with slow momentum. You know, we take out, uh, first you take out agronomic trees. You blame a lot of things on agronomy. Open up uh, air circulation around greens. Uh, you know, where you, the benefit of taking those trees down is sunlight, air circulation, and moisture. And so you, you can you can blame agronomy, to fix things because the uh, uh the conditions are going to get better so that's hard That's easy to, or that's the easy part next one are design trees where there's a tree in the middle of a fairway or something like that that really block uh a well-struck shot you know if you if you read any of the old books written in the 1930s by ross or telling us, they always talk about trees as enhancing the game not impeding in it should impede a well-struck shot so i peel that layer away takes about five years to really correct a forest and hmm. year three people really understand you're just not out there hacking trees you know the tree lovers finally understand there's a rhyme to the reason and then they understand then you open up vistas open up air circulation and I always tell people we just want the golf course to breathe again and we're not cutting trees down we're managing the forest and in the court forest on golf courses need to be managed because it's a hyper environment you know we're adding moisture with irrigation we're adding nutrients and so the trees kind of grow exponentially than they would in nature. So you have to manage them.
0: Mm-hmm. I imagine it's a situation where people might think they don't want trees there, and then they're gone, and nobody's really like, they should put that tree back in, or there needs to be tree here. So you don't realize it until they're cleared how how much things open up and from an eye-level eye standpoint. And for most members, golf doesn't need to be any harder than it already no. is. And in some way, it makes – golf easier you can still hit it in a bad spot where there used to be a tree it's not a good place to be but now you at least have a chance to recover
1: that's correct you know a lot of the pushback i get is from really good players oh you're just going to make it easier i'm like easier for who yeah. you're in the middle of the fairway right <laughs> you know what i realized they're selfish they're like they're giving you know 12 strokes to somebody you're made easier for them because they're recovering but you know if you're in where the trees are and there's no trees there you're in a really bad angle and you're probably going to catch a flyer so it's not that much easier, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's easier that I tell people it's easier that the group in front of you is playing four hours instead of six hours. So what you know.
0: happens, I guess, when you are looking to do some kind of restoration and you you look back and see maybe something that an, an architect did way long ago, maybe a hundred years ago, that today you're like you know what i don't agree with that do you kind of pick and choose what you want to restore kind of your own modern twist on a restoration how does that process work
1: no you know i I think everybody you know it's still your interpretation of what somebody else did and you're trying to apply what you've learned uh, of classic principles to a golf course and apply more of a modern setting so i you know i'm more of a a restore you know i'm pretty faithful you know, I work at quite a few top clubs, and but I don't want my name involved in it. You know, I just I'm there, an archaeologist. I don't, I, you know, it's Donald Ross's course or it's Tillinghouse's course. So I, you know, I just want to be lay in the weeds, restore as much as possible, um, and give them all the credit and let it let it sit because there's, there's generally it's all pretty good. Yeah. You know, when you you peel through, I'm like, damn, these guys are really good. I, you know, I, and I've learned a lot from them.
0: And you know, it took it took me time to kind of fully realize and honestly, just like listening to Andy Johnson over The Fried Egg, it he's making he helps me realize things that I didn't know that I knew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to kind of think that hard, hard golf courses were the best golf courses mm-hmm. and were the most fun to play because of the challenge. And the more I started playing kind of these, you know, wider golf courses that let you choose routes and it lets me get away with more shots, to be honest. How much more fun I had playing it? I'm like what are, we, what are we doing here with golf? What is yeah. golf? Golf is not necessarily a race to finish the, like, with the best score. It's like, I want to enjoy it from no. tee to green. I, I imagine that it seems to be kind of a whole and kind of a renaissance, which you worked for Tom Doak at Renaissance for, and I think that, that name was chosen for a reason, yep. and that golf course architecture in, is in the last 20, 25 years is moving way more towards this should be kind of fun for everyone. Is that a school of thought for you as well? That's so
1: true. You know, we, we we're all we we're all decent players at one time, but – we get off a of bulldoze and go play golf, play matches. So we just play match play because, you know, you never know if you're going to have an eight or, or three on right. a hole. But we wanted it to be fun. You know, and that's what was the cool thing working for Tom is, you know, we built Sabonic and Ballyneal at the same time. And Sabonic, you know, was meant to be a hard golf course. And, you know, had some ownership and had Mr. Nicholas involved and that was kind of the thought. It was hard. And Ballyneal, we were going completely the opposite. And I was out running Ballyneal and we were just trying to make it fun and match-play oriented. We don't even have team markers You know, whoever wins the hole gets Jeez. to pick the tee ground oh, we just awesome. built tee ground And so, inherently, you know, we a lot of people, the feedback of, you know, Sabonix really good and everything, but they just go, man, it's really hard. And people that play balling, I just go, man, that place is so much fun to play. And that's – I think it's people lose sight. It's a game. Yeah. And hard golf is one-dimensional. Hit it down the middle of the fairway, hit the middle of the green, where wider fairways – uh is angles it's smarter golf is wider golf that you have to you know you you, you play angles into the greens
0: and i think uh wh- where people can tend to get lost on it is when it comes to angles into greens is the golf course kind of has to be designed from the green backwards and that angle if you just take a golf course and widen the fairways like just take a narrow narrow course and widen the fairways that doesn't necessarily mean that you added strategical elements to it no. because the right side of the fairway might be as good as the left side and it kind of took playing the old course to trigger that for me go. and yep. you just look go out there and that you get to that second fairway and it's two fairways wide I'm like wow. well all the trouble's right i'm just going to play into 17 fairway this is easy why do they this, this golf course is kind of dumb and then you get to your shot and there's a huge hump between you and the hole and you can't get to it it's like there. Okay, that was it. That was my shining light moment. Yeah. Uh, you just you gave two examples there, Sabonic and uh, and Ballynil. I want to kind of get in your background eventually, but if I'm, from my amateur understanding, that's about two polar opposites as far as uh, your freedom to do what. I guess Ballyneal was kind of a blank slate to. Mm-hmm here's your canvas, do what you like with it. And Sabonic was much more of a dictation from the ownership group as to what kind of golf course they wanted and what kind of style. Am I accurate in saying that? Yeah,
1: it's, it's definitely, you know, it was driven that, you know, it's in a, in a steep neighborhood. It's right between Shinnecock and draw members. And it was, you know, it's a, it's a tough club to play, and it's, but it's a great club and it's a great golf course. It turned out really good. It's just, uh, it's you know, it's leaning towards the harder side where, like I said, Ballyneal, was destination It's kind of like a sand hills mm-hmm. you know, out there and out there and you're gonna spend a bunch of time and have fun. So it's, they're definitely opposite, but you know, built by the same groups, you know, Tom was involved in both obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of interesting how you could build two separate golf courses at the same time. And
0: well, before we get even more lost than we already are, I get, I get a little carried away. I get excited, but I want to kind of get into your background, how you got into golf course architecture, design, rest- restoration, your background into where you are now.
1: Well, I, uh, you know, I didn't, get in, I didn't get into the business till I was almost 30. You know, I was an auto designer in, uh, for Chevrolet. Uh, went to school for a while, engineering degree. Went back. And while I was in, uh, I went to Michigan Tech. I was a civil engineering degree. And I read uh, Ron Witten's book, The Golf Course, and has the biography of all the great architects. And I was kind of going through it. I'm like, man, I have all these guys that actually have civil engineering degrees. I always played golf. I played all the other sports. But golf was something I loved to do. I loved the landforms was interested in building and so uh I'm like maybe I can get into this and that's when about in the late eighties was things things started booming. So I, when I graduated I sent about two hundred to two hundred and fifty resumes out to everybody. <laughs> Had six job offers. And Ron Force, who's a big restoration guy, uh, just started his business a year earlier and Mike Hurdman got got my resume and handed it to Ron and Ron called me and I'm like, this is a great opportunity and joined him in 1990 and worked for him for two and a half years and we were just strictly doing restoration we were like the first wave of guys that were starting to restore golf courses and of remodeling you know gill had just started just hired work with tom gill hans uh brian silva just started doing restoration work so it was like we were in the first ground level of that kind of kind of work
0: so in those those two and a half years three years you worked at, at force what are you what's your role are you in the bulldozers are you shaping or what is what is kind of your role now
1: we were uh, ron was strictly an architect okay. you know so it's kind of architect associate so i got to learn you know about the business um you know being an associate helping on projects doing drawings the basics um, but the one the cool thing that that i learned from ron was the love of classic architecture Ron and I would go on separate trips on, on on projects, and you know you go you go work on our golf course, do a master plan or something like that, and then you go visit five courses on that pro, on that that trip. And we come back, and uh, that's back when we all had cameras, you know, thirty five millimeter cameras, and we'd sh- show each other slideshows, and we'd spend hours in his office going through slides of greens and just studying why they were great, and you know whether. One of the seminal moments of my life it was the first time I saw pictures of the National Golf Links that Tom had just, or Ron had just gone to. And I thought at that time Shinnecock was probably one of the great courses of the world. Well, lo and behold, I didn't know the greatest course in maybe the world was right next door. It just blew my mind, some of the crazy stuff that was going on. So, you know, that was the beauty of working for Ron. It gave me the love of
0: classic architecture. The great old courses were good. Why is National Golf Links the greatest golf course in the world?
1: I think it's, you know, uh, you could probably ask any architect, I think, of any reverence, Bill Coor, Tom Doke any of us, that, and Gil so anyway, the of course, they're going to say. Mm-hmm. Mainly because it's so uh, complex. I always tell people it's like you're playing chess or you're playing chess with Mr. Spock. <laughs> On <You know>, three <laughs> levels, that's the national. I don't care who you are. Take th- For people that build, have
0: never been or won't ever go, take yeah. us there. What's it like? And
1: It's just, uh, you know, C.B. McDonald was the original architect. He lived there. That was his great golf course. And, and he had time to tinker with it. He sent people overseas, Devereux Emmett, to to, um, to survey the great holes of the world, the Redan, the um the, Birits, the, the short hole, all the, ho- all the great holes that he ex- ended up copying. And just influenced so much design into there and so strategic that, you know, no matter who you are and no matter your ability, you have about two choices or three choices on every shot where to hit the ball. It just keeps getting higher level. Where like I said simple hard golf architecture you know, hard golf is just simple hit the middle of the fairway, hit the middle of the green, the national you know, there's so many different types of bunkering out there different types of angles the widths the uh, the variety of the greens, that's so complex that it's so much fun because you always have to think your way around the golf course.
0: When you 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 mentioned kind of looking at slideshows looking at green surfaces and stuff that was cool. What in your mind makes a good green surface? You kind of know it when you see it. Yeah. It's kind of you just see it and you're like, "Oh, that's a cool green." Yeah. But like, what are characteristics of a great green complex versus maybe a like an, an unappealing green complex?
1: That uh, that it's so complex that it's a different shot from different sides of the fairway. You know, different angles into them. When you tuck a pin on the right side, should be a different shot than on the left, or in the back or the front. Um, just the variety of shots that you have to manufacture just to get close to a pin on that day and that's you know great strategic goal as you mentioned starts from the green working backwards so if the flag's on the right hand side of the green one day you're going to have to come in on the opposite side of the fairway that day and you have to read where the flag is from the t or if you pass by that hole earlier so you you plan your attack depending on where the hole location is and if it's on the left you might play the hole completely different and also sudden the bunkers on the right are in play so it's that complex, you know, and, and it's high level. That's if you're hitting the ball straight, mm-hmm. but you know, even your highest handicapper, you know, if you're a good caddy, you can maneuver people around to avoid hazards and know the angles also.
0: See, I find if I'm not as an overall rule, but if I have you know five ten foot putts over the course of a day and they're all like double breakers i i tend to think that there's just humps and bumps in greens for mm-hmm. no real reason or no real theme i yeah. love long contours to greens that i'm thinking about the contour of it from the fairway but if there's humps and bumps kind of everywhere the amateur player just doesn't you can't i can't i can't work my way around just random humps and bumps on yeah. the greens. so it's kind of one of those things that's hard to describe even in my it's own an head, art but you look at something you're like that is a cool green i was wondering if you had a way of kind of thinking about it and honestly listening to tom and andy's podcast just hearing him kind of say certain things about like i want i don't want people aiming at flags from the fairway i'm like oh man that is a cool way to kind of yep. think of a way to design a golf course.
1: tom tom and bill coer will be i still think going in history would be the greatest putting green builders ever you know they're so complex and they're they're so different but they're the greens have such great variety, and there's such thought into of the shots into it. You know, when you're building a green for Tom, he's he's just coming, kind of, he's grinding around it, and he's thinking about shots, all the different shots, even recovery shots. You know, when you're at, you know average golfer at a club that actually holds a handicap as an 18 handicap, that means they're missing 18 greens. So Tom's always thinking about recovery, mm-hmm. and you know the different shots and recovery
0: shots. That, you know that he lets you have. Do how did you end up working with Tom? How did that that process work? I mean, you worked with him for what seventeen years? Seventeen years. I was his vice president. Uh, Tom,
1: you know, I, I always kind of knew the myth of Tom when he was young. He was this you know young guy. Then he started building High Point up in northern Michigan. I, I grew up in Michigan, so I knew about him. And uh, even when I was college, I knew about him and, and uh, called him a couple times. And you know, he was just kind of doing his thing. Just left Pete and. Uh, and then I knew Gil Hans was like one of his associates early on and, and, uh, I, you know, was working for Ron and then I heard, you know, I struck up a friendship with Ron, uh, Gil Hans and I, I knew he was just about to leave Tom. So, um, I was looking to get back to Michigan eventually because I, you know, my, my wife is from Michigan and we want to move back and, and, uh, uh, I was going to go work for a, an arch- uh, kind of a mid-level architect, Jerry Matthews, out of Michigan, and Tom caught word of that, and, and he goes, "No, you're going to come work for me." <laughs> I'm like, "Perfect," <laughs> you know. So I got you know, dream come true. I got to live in Traverse City, which I used to you know, holiday as a kid, and then work for I knew who was going to be the next big thing. You know, I, I just knew Tom was that smart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I caught him early, and we were still just doing restoration, and he would built High Point in a few courses, but nothing really big. So for even for the first three years, we hadn't built a new golf course. We were just kind of living off the restoration and remodeling stuff, and then uh, boom, struck you know, s- struck it pretty good and built Pacific Dunes. And then it was off to the races. We, we had a pretty good run there for a while, and he still has a great run. But you know, I was pretty fortunate. I was right there in the middle of it all.
0: From your perspective, and can we you just kind of mentioned something about green green design and thinking of recovery shots? But from your perspective, what makes Tom Doak great?
1: He just understands golf. You know, it's you know you see a lot of golf courses being built out there, and I, I see them all. And I'm like, man, it's quite not quite there. You know, they did, maybe didn't get the golf, but they got the eye candy. The bunkers are brilliant. Or, or uh, Tom was always about routing in the in the greens, and understanding the shots, and making it fun and interesting. He's just that smart at it. And then he understood he created a creative process that we nurtured with uh, amongst us associates. Had jim urbina myself you know now he's still got uh, brian Slonick, schneider um, eric iverson who are some of the best guys in the business you know those guys are really talented and they're all really smart and um he just created a a creative culture where Tom would get the routing in and he'd always have one guy running and the other guys are shaping it and we would just ask him a few questions he'd just give you enough information to give you enough rope to to go do go build what you think is best and then he's a brilliant editor. You come in and he, you think you nailed something really good and he come in and within twenty minutes make it ten times better. <laughs>
0: it's just, you know, that kind of a mind. So what was the pro- you mentioned Pacific Dunes kind of being the, the thing that really jump started things? What was take me through that process? What was the first time you guys saw that property? And I mean, was it just a million options and kind of overwhelming as to what you could do with that land? We, you
1: know, Tom and I originally walked the property, Mike Kaiser said, you know, David K was about to start. Bandon dunes but hadn't started yet and and uh tom had some connections through chicago and uh, befriended mike kaiser mike said well you can go out and look so tom and i went out to the superintendent show in san francisco we flew up to bandon and um david had just started cutting center lines through the gorse and so tom and i went up and spent two days on it walking around just amazing you know property and there was a, a, a barbed wire fence and tom and i go we asked the caretaker shorty dow hey can we go over and look he goes no you can't go over there. that guy's got a gun you know <laughs> and i told tom we gotta go there we, you know? so we, we lost shorty somewhere and tom and i snuck over a barbed wire fence and looked over to the dune and saw pacific dunes right there and mike had had us looking at a property south of bandon it's lower property and uh, when reported back to mike kaiser tom said uh We'd be, you know, if, if David doesn't do good, you know, we could fill in, but you really should think about buying that property to the north. And a couple of years later, Mike um, called and said the guy foreclosed and I bought it. And then David hogged some of the property, built a couple of holes into it. And uh, it was just, we knew it was going to be a life changer for all of us. I remember the first time we, found, you know, Urbina and Tom and I were out there. I think Don Plasek flew with us out and we just knew. You know, it was like, this is going to be a game changer for all of us. Uh, we'd all been big fans of the Sandhills, which we thought was a big game changer. We knew this was going to be a big one.
0: And uh, we never took it for granted. We knew the responsibility we had on our shoulders. So you guys were very confident that people were going to show up and play at this room, remote location. It's easy to say now, but at the time, it was very much. Well, they already the had,
1: you know, it was interesting while we were building Pacific Dunes, you know, Banner was open and, and uh, the lodge was open. We stayed at the lodge and, uh, you know, in the wintertime, Mike, you know, cut the rates. He didn't think anybody would come down in the winter because it's raining up in Portland and Seattle. Man, they came down in droves. When you can't play golf in Portland when it's raining, you could play in Bandon because of sandy soils. So it was successful year-round and actually almost really more successful in the wintertime mm-hmm. because it brought people would come down and play golf. And so you know, I don't think Mike even knew it could be the biggest success. But we knew, you know, by living there how popular uh, Bandon was – and we knew how good ours was gonna mm. be. And um, we had all the confidence in the world it was gonna be that great. And, and, and it turned out that good.
0: What were the holes that David built into the property into Pacific? Was it six and seven? Yeah, okay. he just hogged right, but, into, uh, yeah, <laughs> right into that.
1: <laughs> but rightfully so, yeah. six,
0: seven and eight, I think it was, like,
1: oh, it was on was over the fence. Okay,
0: so how, did, how does that, you, you see this incredible piece of property, obviously your eyes are going towards the shore, I would think, or towards that coast i've always looked at you know designing a golf course like a piece a puzzle piece and whatnot do you design from the coast backwards do you start drawing out holes like what what is also like maybe an example of something that almost happened at pacific dunes that ended up not happening because i mean i imagine you can draw out a perfect hole and you're like oh well now i can't use that part or and whatnot i mean how did you guys come I'm up i with- think
1: you know it's because tom tom you tom would always hog the hog the maps he did the routing first and he'd give it to us and it was pretty hard to improve on yeah um but you know, routing a golf course, you have to have a lot of things in your mind. You know, that's why Tom's, Tom's. a math genius too, and so it's a lot of math work. It's like knowing the eighteen holes. You got to have this many pars in there, uh, length, and you're trying to get all the angles of the of a clock or of the of the compass. Um, you're always taking advantage of backdrop. You know, we learned that from McKenzie. You always know, had a great backdrop behind a green. It wasn't coincidence that there's a mountain behind that green. Mm-hmm. So it, there's all these factors and then getting back is, a, is, are you bringing nine holes back or are you going on 18 in a loop? That's why, you know, Pacific dunes, you know, Tom took some chances. They have two part of threes in a row, but it fit, you know, we were just, he was just looking for the great piece of ground. He's looking for 18 great holes that fit into that land. And there was some bridge, you know, you, you, you had the primary dune right along the water. And then you had some flat ground and then you had some the secondary dunes, you know, up high. So you had to bridge between the two of them, you know, so four and twelve kinda bridge those gaps, fifteen. And give
0: you yeah. a peek at the ocean on yeah. the way
1: out and But the, it's you know, you get it's it's great drama. You get out there and then you go away from it, you get back out again. So you don't wanna hog it all at one time. You gotta loop out to it and back. You know, we learned that from you know, Bally Bally Bunyan and places like that that's why going out and studying great golf courses right. that's how you learn from them mm-hmm. you know and you don't you don't shoot it all at one time you want to get glimpses so you go to the ocean as many times
0: as you can and get away from them and bannon does that as well bannon and does, does it really well fourth too. hole four five six and then yeah. 12 goes back out and then 15 16 and whatnot so what is uh you know i, I we've, we've all read tom's confidential guide on, <laughs> on golf books and kind of uh under confidential guide on golf courses and uh, seeing how much travel and stuff he's done have you personally done a lot of travel around seeing courses learning from courses is that encouraged by Tom That's totally encouraged by him Yeah,
1: you know we've all done it you know just working for him you get to travel
0: you know i've I've lived in I've lived
1: in New Zealand, Mexico, Scotland you know we've been all over the world and while you're at it, you're also going on studying so I've played pretty much all the great courses of the world early on when I was working for Tom and then um, we all have and you know in Tom expects that of you because when you're coming up, you know you're about to build a green he's like eh, i'm thinking about the 15th of riviera you know on this green so it just kind of gives you a little glimpse of what he's thinking mm-hmm. and you build it and then he comes and edits it but you know he has that in his mind this is kind of the concept i'm thinking of it worked here this green with this fairway and so you have a pretty good glimpse of what's going on you go build it and then he edits it but he
0: wants you to know all those things and if I'm getting to uh correct me if I'm st- if I'm not steering along the path but the next big you did Ballyneal is that after Pacific Dunes yes and then I and then you went to Cape Kidnappers and did in New Zealand or was there more in between that I'm sure there was yeah because
1: uh, uh, you know the progression was Pacific Dunes kind of put us over the map but you know we'd, we'd built some you know beach tree and some some riverfront and uh lost dunes a lot of you know we were building them in threes mm-hmm. it seemed like and then uh you know the next three were I think um like Bally Neal and I think Lost Dunes were at the same time we had Rock Creek Apache you know we had we were being in groups sure. and then I think um, Cape Kidnappers was the big one that took us all over you know um, all the associates went over we all shaped I ran the project that was the first one where we all went and just at the
0: time of her life. I was going to say, that's the one I'm maybe most excited to talk about, I think. So I made the mistake of playing Cape Kidnappers two days after playing Tara ED. So it was... (laughs) Otherwise... A little less underwhelming. Well, that's the thing. Some of the shock value was taken away, which is a shame, but it's still like... I was was kind of... I I went in kind of purposely pretty blind to it. Obviously, I've seen the pictures of the back nine and whatnot. And the more I like... When I walked away, I was like, man, I really wish I would have shot more footage on the front nine. I mean, the front nine is almost, I think, Defines the course more than the back nine does. There's so, so much intrigue to all the golf holes that, that go through that front nine. So I want to hear the pro when you got had you as was the job already accepted and you guys were doing it by the first time you saw the property or how did that how did at all cape, that work? at cape, at cape yeah.
1: Um, Tom had flown, uh, julian Robertson is the owner from New York, Tiger Hedge Fund. Um, Played played Pacific Dunes. Or went to Bandon and went to play Bandon Dunes. And they said, sir, uh, we can't. We're going to make you play Pacific Dunes. And he threw up fit because he didn't. He's like, I came here to play Bandon Dunes. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, you know, it's full, but we're going to put you in. You'll so be played, fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. And he was really mad. By the end of the round, he goes, who built this? And he, and he, he goes, he had a, a second course because he had already built Curry Cliffs. So he contacted Tom, flew him down, which is not a quick flight. Sure. And, uh helicoptered in the project and obviously it's a spectacular site for those that
0: haven't seen it take us to this site what is it uh
1: cape kidnappers is is a is a a, basically a peninsula that juts out in the pacific ocean it's about uh 300 feet above the ocean and at the at the tip is uh it's like a a tooth a tooth you know at the end where the gannets live and it's just a big uh they call sheep stations it's a sheep farm but it's a five thousand sheep five thousand acre sheep farm up on a cliff up on a high high plateau but there's a one little plateau there where there's huge deep 100 foot ravines where we were able to shoehorn a golf course into and and the ground is actually pretty flat where you play the golf but it's um tom accepted the job i said i want to be the i want to be in charge Hmm. fly my family down so i went down and you know, the road going up there, we call it 14 stream crossing. It was a stream and it was a two track and you're going through the stream 14 times to get up there. So every
0: day it would take 45 minutes to get to the site. 45 minutes. Yeah. Every day. Well, when I, when I went there, I rang the buzzer from the main road to the property and the, I said, yeah, I got a tea time. Come on. Okay. Come on up. And the guy said, drive safe. Yeah. And I was like, no, like, no, I'm here. I'm, I'm here. I'm ringing the buzzer here. He's like, yeah, yeah drive safe. And it was about a 20 minute drive. from Yeah. The main it's, road. it's a five kilometer drive winding up and
1: down this, uh, this stream valley and, uh you know it took it took a year and a half to build the road to get into it but we Jeez. you know every day we drop in a two track and you know i'd been up there by myself early on and you know if it rained if you got a, you know too much rain you couldn't you either were going to get stuck up there or you didn't go up and uh it's just a spectacular sight
0: were there concerns when when tom saw it for the first time whether or not you could get equipment up there to build it
1: yeah, we had all those concerns. Yeah. <laughs> we had a lot. Did we helicopter? You know, we actually helicoptered the
0: bunker sand
1: into it. It was cheaper oh. to to helicopter, you know, pick it up at the bottom in these tankers, and drop it into the bunkers because it was easier than bringing the semis up. Jeez. So it, it was a logistic nightmare getting up there. Especially the road was under construction while we were building it. So we, you know, there was there was traffic jams. You were stuck an hour, you know, halfway up the hill because they were building a bridge. Um, so it was it was a difficult place to get to. Once you got up on top, the golf holes kind of laid in there, but we had to build some pretty expensive bridges that had two or 300 foot spans that go from
0: one ravine to the, across the ravine to the other. When you saw the fingers of the Cape or the back nine to stretch, was it as simple as, Oh, there's a golf hole. There's a golf hole. Did it take some kind of convincing to build holes out into those fingers? Well, or? you could get out to them, but
1: you didn't know how to get back. Yeah. So they weren't wide enough to have two holes. Um, so you, had, you knew you had to get out and jump across the ravine and we knew that was going to be expensive. Um, so it was it was simplifying as, as much as you could to get to the ocean as many times as you could uh, without you know breaking the bank and building these gigantic bridges, which we did. So it was a very efficient routing, but you know the beauty is the inland holes. We're just as good as the holes with the
0: views like you said it's there's some great ground especially in the inland holes um and so much of that is probably lost on visitors it was to me going into it because i wasn't just had no expectations yeah, those for first
1: it. six holes are really really good yeah you know
0: and then great pieces of ground uh
1: we didn't move a lot you know it, you know tom was coined that you know the father of minimalism even when he was 20 some odd years old but people don't realize minimalism is like save as many holes as you can that are natural grade and then move the world to make the other three great and so interesting we would have disguised moving the world on some of those holes people you know the beauty is you know our our, the biggest compliment is to me is even like at stream song you didn't know where we moved the dirt you know because we we knew how to go wide enough to tie it into nature so there wasn't like a zipper around the golf hole like oh you started here we don't want you to know where we started where we had to move the big amount of dirt and Cape kidnappers. We filled some valleys in, and you know, built some green sites that were on little volcanoes. Uh, you just don't know it because we, you know, we were dedicated to make it the whole place seamless.
0: How do you those go- those holes on the back nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, and really sixteen, two in the opposite direction? How do you des- what, what's the thought process going to design those two holes for the two extreme winds you might face there? I mean, you are that is an exposed exposed piece of property. Those winds are extreme up there.
1: Like fifteen is is sometimes unplayable.
0: You know, uh, uh, six fifty dead into the wind. We had the, <laughs> rena- had the Renaissance Cup, Tom's
1: big tournament there, and it was howling wind. And uh, fifteen, you know, we 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 had two person match play events, two two man teams, and one person would finish the hole because the wind would howl so much. So i remember hitting like two iron two iron two iron two iron putter you know (laughs) and hitting a two iron 100 yards if you could and um it's just the nature of the site and you knew once one day a week when the winds would shift that was going to be really difficult but the other days were just spectacular so you just had to accommodate you know you tried to make the holes as wide as you could you understand where the prevailing winds were and uh you know, hope he didn't catch a bad one jeez <laughs> oh,
0: i mean what do you you said uh, when they when you guys got the site that you were you were super excited about it you wanted to lead it what what was most appealing to you about that that project
1: one new zealand
0: yeah you know people
1: you know there's a romantic quality about new zealand everybody has I'll say it's, what
0: makes new zealand great to you. it is
1: it's just the great variety you go 100 you go 100 miles and you're in different national park you know you think the, the entire country would be uh teddy roosevelt would have made the whole place in a national park and and just the diversity you know from the tip the northern tip is tropical to the southern tip there's penguins and everything in between the south alps and you know the wine country it's just a it's the size of california but so diverse how long did you live in new zealand a year and a half yeah where found, did you live uh right there at the base uh was just right at the base of the hill and i was living in uh my wife and my five-year-old son was with me so um we got rented a cottage
0: right in a winery. Was <laughs> cool. it was it sounds cool. like you want to go back. It was pretty cool. Do you go back to New Zealand often, or have you been, I've been back?
1: back? You know, I, I did follow up. You know, post construction, the Renaissance Cup, uh, and then I think I've been back three times. Know, I've been you? back. I've been back when we had the Renaissance Cup of Terry a couple of years ago. Okay. I was
0: back. That's what I was going to ask next yeah. about Terry Edie. Had you seen oh. Terry Edie? What is what is your I, I do my best to try to try to tell people, explain it to people and they I, have a hard time. I don't think I've found the proper most words. Most people for one it. haven't heard about it. Two, I, mean, I tell people
1: I literally think it's the greatest golf course in the world. And people are like, What? I'm like, Well I didn't have anything to do with it <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's really the most magical settings because you have the mountains out in the you know I always call it Doctor nose layers out there in the ocean, those mountains. Um, those islands out there, you have know, the best climate. You have one of the most, you know, prettiest sites. We we stole the superintendent from Pacific Dunes. They so have some of the best fescue fairways in the world. Um, the design is is out of it. I, I've never seen anything that complex and that cool before. You know, Brian Slonk ran it. Brian's a dear friend, and he was one of my original interns and one of the smartest guys I know, and his brilliance is all over it, Tom's brilliance. Um, it's just everything about it. It was the best I'd ever seen of its, of its kind of subject.
0: It's like all all the, what up makes all these kind of great modern designs cool in their own way, all like kind of combined into one.
1: Yeah, it's like a it's like everything they knew, for the last twenty five years, and we're able to pour it into one project. And I thought Pacific Dunes was the perfect project, and I thought Bali was the perfect project, mm-hmm. but this is, um, you know, and it's so quiet, so private. You know, you're allowed to play it once, and then you have to join it. So it's real, you know, secluded. The owner's great; they understand it. Um, understated clubhouse. I remember playing one afternoon uh, after post Renaissance Cup. I was playing with Brian Palmer from Shore Acres, and we we planned to go out and play nine holes or six holes. It's right by the gun. They'll go body surfing for six holes and come
0: back. <laughs> you know, it's. It's The the setting is like I, – I said it felt a bit like walking into the Truman Show in that it, the yes. ocean looks a little bluer than it does in other places. Ways. It's a perfect, perfect set. And the sound sounds like yeah. amplified in it. You honestly sound, feel like you're playing golf in a simulation. It, it truly
1: is. We, you know, we, 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 the evening of the Renaissance Cup, they have a cocktail party out front. And they had this perfect set of waves coming in. It was a perfect curl, like a ten-foot curl. And all of a sudden, there's dolphins jumping in. And somebody <laughs> says, "Cue the dolphins," <laughs> you know. And it was literally like that's what the, it yeah. is—the Truman Show in its, and it's literally man-made. You know, all the contours are man-made, and it's. Um, Brian had they called it the art department the, the, the set of three get young guys that that are brilliant young uh, associates and young interns that were really into artwork and making it beautiful and natural looking and um, and it's some of the funnest shots I've ever seen in a golf course you, you have to you know I, I, I played a bunch with Brian uh, while I was there he was my partner and then we just played a bunch golf together out there and he's like aim it over there 30 yards over there and watch it feed on him. Mm. And so all the really cool alternate shots were there and sometimes it weren't they obvious like Tom told Andy's like sometimes I don't want him aim it to flag sometimes you're even 30 yards left and watch it feed in right with it's, wedges with wedges it's pretty fun yeah
0: you know it's just interesting and fun that's what you know, on the 11th holes of par five there and the, i played with jim roerstaff out okay. there and he just said all right play it 40 yards short and left and just watch it disappear and roll up on there and it did and then the uh, third and twelfth hole, um, par four, had wedge, and he's like, play this off that hill to the right yep. of the green. Don't go Don't at that pin. In. And what it, we, we were at Barnbuckle Dunes about a week before that, and one of the, I guess, criticisms we had of that was that it just didn't quite play like it looked like the slopes wanted you to play. The, yep. the greens were just a bit furry, and the yeah. slopes were just a bit furry. And it was that's what I, I, blows my mind about golf course design is you guys come up with these, percent grade slopes that you know you're putting into a course and you don't really know how it's going to play until the grass is grown in and how you get a something because once it's built you can't i mean it's pretty difficult to just bulldoze it and change the grade over the keys basically percent Mm -hmm. so how how do how does it even imagine it's just so much experience that comes into saying like all right if i want this slope to the right of this green it has to be this grade and it can't be one degree off of that or else it kind of ruins the you just get
1: in one you got to trust the superintendent you're hoping hoping they can maintain what you are trying to design you know luckily we knew we had you know cj out there we already knew from pacific Dunes. so we weren't worried about the turf conditions and the firmness so you could pull off those shots and that doesn't always work you know right. a lot of, sometimes the grass gets a little you know you either get a new owner or the owner wants it greener than we thought it would be we needed a little browner and a little firmer and so sometimes the shots don't work
0: yeah had you during your time in new zealand did you visit kari cliffs yes i did yeah what did uh what was i mean were you trying to learn something in that regard to kind of how to fit a golf course into an extreme landscape or what was kind of the, the takeaways you had from Kari Cliffs?
1: One, we knew, you know, that was the first place we went. And when, we, when Tom and I landed in New Zealand, all of a sudden there's a helicopter waiting for
0: us, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that's, they are not close together.
1: <laughs> no, and, uh, you know, Julian was putting on, putting on the show and he flew up in a helicopter to the Kari Cliffs and, you know, toured it and landed and played it. And, you know, Kari Cliffs is really good. It's on a really severe piece of ground and um david Harmon, i think did a great job um he's passed away since but um it's a more of a modern design you know they weren't thinking about the ball running here and there um you know it's it's a highly maintained golf course it's pretty you know but it's a pretty setting Mm -hmm. up there in the bay islands and so it fits it really well i think what we learned more about it was from our client you know what our client was and what we needed to and you know even before i flew out to new zealand tom sent me out to the k out to the hamptons julian he has a place out there and he's a member at national and shinnecock and i spent two days with him just picking his he goes go out and pick his brain what he likes about the national and what he likes about shinnecock so we can kind of figure out what mm. what we could get away with you know what we could you know what would be acceptable in his mind and did he want a big lush place you know what you know could we you know yeah what was his knowledge about base? yeah yeah so um, I think that was mostly, car, you know, because we didn't really copy much from Kari Cliffs other than, you know, we had some of their project managers and their construction crew come up and their maintenance guys. So we got to go know them and learn from their mistakes or, or their successes and how we could apply it at our place.
0: And that one of the things I took away from Kari Cliffs was how they used, in the way they used the land, a lot of your really severe climbs. First of all, it's a, you need a golf cart out there. Sure, yeah but a lot of the climbs, a lot of difficulties are in between holes. Like the yeah. golf holes themselves have, there's a couple holes. I think the fifth or sixth hole is a par four that really goes uphill, but the rest of them don't play too extreme from up or down yeah. over this crazy wild property. And he just,
1: did a good job. He laying you know, and, and there's and some very,
0: bridges there too yeah. that are you know, enormous. And, you
1: know, you can, you can build a golf course in real severe ground and just not be even playable. It sure. just could be a big, dumb golf course. And, and
0: he, he, got a good a working good golf course on real severe alone mm-hmm. did you go down to the south island jack's point at all while you were there
1: no we did play arrowhead mm-hmm. or Arrowtown. um you know it, it was interesting you know when when you run a project for tom you're kind of a slave to the site because sure. you, you want to be you're running on sundays i'd be up there by myself or take my kid up in shape and uh, my wife my son got to travel all over new zealand while i was living there i didn't get to see much because mm-hmm. you know shapers always are going on trips and stuff um, weekends away with their wives and i was always kind of slave to it but since then i've gone to travel a lot and uh um, see the rest of it and uh more just be a tourist than yeah. see anything golf but uh you know parapet room was great we played that okay. and, you know there's some great golf still there but you know i think cape and the cape and uh terry are kind of heads and shoulders above yeah you know, it it's kind of funny like the local um jack nichols was building course up in Taupo and, and uh, my landlord was like, well, Jack's going to build something better than you because he's the greatest course in you know, golf <laughs> in the world. I'm like, uh, I think you're going to be surprised how good this is going to be. Yeah. He just thought we were a bunch of yahoos <laughs> from the United States. He thought it was really arrogant. I'm like, no, this can be really yeah. good. It's going to be pretty us. well known in our world. And I think when it popped into, whatever 25th or something in the world. I send a note. I'm like, I think we did pretty good. We did. All right. Yeah.
0: yeah. There's a lot happening with New Zealand golf, especially with Terry D and, you know, potentially two new courses going yeah. in there at, at Terry Edie. Right. That's going to be a true, I mean, it, as of now, and I, we just kind of did a video series on it. I mean, it's, I played three courses on the North Island, and I mean, it's nine hours of driving between them. It's yeah. not, it's not a, it's not like the su- the Sandbelt where you nope. throw a blanket over. You, you just know, go there and play golf. Eight world class yeah. courses. It's not a true golf destination just yet, but no, it isn't. You know,
1: people ask me, I'm like, well, go and rent because you're gonna want to, you're gonna want to go on holiday in New Zealand, and if you can sneak it around to golf and one of our, you know one of the courses, great. But it's not really a golf destination, but it's getting there now. It's it's,
0: uh, you know, they're they're getting there. Yeah, they definitely are. What you know, you mentioned some of the travel you've done and uh, all the different places you've lived and stuff. But what I'm wondering in in your travels, what is a place or a series of places you've seen that have had the most influence on you?
1: It was going to the sand belt to Australia, yeah, it changed my life quite a bit. You know, it was, um, you know, we were on tourist visas, when we were in New Zealand, so we we're, I don't know if we were illegal aliens <laughs> or what working there, but we, you know, every three months we had to bug out, bug out of the country, mm-hmm. and. Might as well go to Melbourne oh, and play darn. golf. I go to Dang, I hate to do that. So we'd go over there and play golf. You know, I'd set. You know, I knew Mike Clayton really well, and so we we set up great golf trips over there, and we'd go for a week and play everything. And the, the biggest thing for as as a consultant now was the mowing lines in in all the sandball courses. You know how they mowed, you know greens out to right to the edge of the bunkers. So how they mowed from chipping areas and then the next tees. You know, Kingston Heath is brilliant mm-hmm. woodlands. So I learned how to kind of apply that over here where Ballyneal was a product of that. You know, was I came back from New Zealand. My, you know, my hair was on fire. I'm like, man, now I know how to make some cool stuff in in some sandy areas. So Ballyneal was a pro- direct product of that where you were always walking on short grass. You could almost walk the whole golf course on short grass. You know, we connect fairways or chipping areas to the next tees, into the next fairways, into the next green. So it was just a contiguous... You know, and, and Terry E is that, you know, connected yeah. fairways.
0: Um can play it with a putter by technicality. Yeah,
1: so all those courses after that, we kind of, that was a big mantra in the back of our minds to make things even cool, even cooler.
0: Yeah, I think something that triggered me was when we were at Royal Melbourne, and they had, and I, forgive me because I don't remember the, the grass types, and I'm not an agronomical expert by any means, but they had different, la- the landing areas in front of the greens were a different surface than yeah. the fairways because yeah. they wanted you to be able to play run-ups, Run and I was her. like, Oh, now we're talking! Now we're thinking about you know how how to combine the playability of a course with like grass types. And I think kind of transitioning a little bit towards you know we we watch a lot of professional golf. You see a lot of professional golf and how different those courses that they play are from the courses that I've enjoyed playing the most. And so almost everything comes back to two things to me. One, it's technology. They have mm-hmm. to go to golf courses that you know can handle these guys pounding drivers three thirty. And two, it just comes down to courses playing fast and firm, or yeah. playing the way like Scotland golf. To me, and people listening to this podcast have heard me rave about it to a nauseating extent. Is like is golf like yeah. that? Like playing target and kind of throwing it in the air and stopping it in the next place is not nearly, nearly as fun. But kind of walk walk in, in the most broad way. Take us through why. Like a PGA Tour golf course is not going to play fast and firm like I, that. We that we would ideally want
1: one. I think the tour is sports entertainment. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it is entertaining. Yesterday yeah. it was pretty entertaining. Oh my god, it was. <laughs> um, and so you know they want these guys to look good. They are good. They're that good. Mm-hmm. You know they they just hit a ball on a, on a dime and far and straight now. And so um, they want them to shine. They want them to be a, a pretty package on TV. So you know when you when you see. Royal Liverpool, that's just brown or anything you know. The you know even Gullen when it was baked, mm-hmm. pe- people have a hard time looking at that. You know, in the states and it's just like where's the fairway, right? Where, where's the green and uh, and watching the ball roll out four hundred feet. But you know, what was interesting at carnousie is that I don't know if it necessarily played good links golf because the greens and the approaches were wet, very wet. Yeah, and so it was it was just hard because is hard. And you got to keep it in the fairway, um, but they were hitting it 400 yards and then throwing wedges on, you know, and spinning the ball back. Right. So I don't think it worked really well there, but it's it's compelling to watch. Um, I I don't know, you know, I, I I just think it's sports entertainment and it's it's watching pretty golf on TV. You know, we we see it every April, and when it it's like Dorothy coming out of the. Mm-hmm. You know, black and white to color, you watch yeah. Augusta. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's just that you've worked on so many sites here, and just looking at your resume, of, of places in the States that do it really well. And like I said, yeah. the most entertaining golf I played is in Scotland. All those Lynx courses essentially kind of play, in some way, play the same way. They're yep. all designed for just the ball to be rolling on the ground. and yeah. Going out, I, you know, I went to Bandon for the first time five years ago, first Lynx golf experience ever. Played it, and I just kind of wondered, like, all right, is that Lynx golf or is that American Lynx golf? Went and played in Scotland and went back to Bandon this past year. Bandon Bingo. holds up, maybe is, even better. <laughs> it is Links, Links golf. Ken Nice is that good? That superintendent out yeah. there, and he really gets it. And it, honestly, it is that feeling of hitting an iron off that turf and the sound that the ball makes when it hits the green are the two things that yep. like triggered to me. Like that is kind of just that's golf. Like that is yeah. totally golf. So how? I guess I don't really have a question related to it. It's just it's just that trying to highlight what are the best places in the States that do that style of golf? And you seem to have worked on maybe worked 90% of them. Of them yeah.
1: You know, and, and, and it's just, it's also that it's necessary for the design. You know, we love that kind of golf, sure. you know, cause it's fun. If you have to land a ball, you know, 150 yards out and you know you have to land it 30 yards short and read the ground, what the ground feed it in. I think you know, what they always say is like in, in uh, I think it's American golf. You, you can breathe a sigh of relief when the ball hits the ground and over in Scotland, you stop breathing when the ball hits the ground because <laughs> you starts, got, yeah. you got 10 more seconds of excitement. And But you but it, you read the ground. You let the ground move the ball instead of the ball moving in the air. Where professional golf is mostly moving the ball in the air and picking a target and hitting the perfect shot because I read it right and, and it is the perfect shot. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lynx golf is creating the perfect shot and landing it anywhere you want and reading the ground, you know. Five different guys can take a different avenue to the same spot, you know, just by maneuvering the ball, the flight of the ball, using the ground on the left or the ground on right to feed it in. You know, we're pretty fortunate that we, you know, that's the kind of golf we love to play. Mm -hmm. And so it's sandy base soils. So Tom was on a pretty good run and getting some great sites. So Pacific Dunes obviously was the first one. You know, the Sandhills was the start one that started all for Bill and Ben and got us all realized we could build something cool like that. And then, you know, Stream Song works really well. Yeah. Rusty Mercer, amazing yeah. that he, in the wintertime, can get Bermuda to play that way. Mm-hmm. Blows us all away. If you go play Stream Song in, here in Florida in the middle of January when the Bermuda's a little dormant, you're putting from 100 yards out mm-hmm. and it works.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, that's great. Um, and that's the key, you said it, the sandy soil. I mean, yeah. as much as like we. <clears throat> We would love every golf course to kind of play fast and firm and interesting like that. But the key is the soil. You can't just build in the middle of Ohio a, a Lynx but golf course. But you
1: can do it on clay soil. You, yeah. can, you can firm up clay it's just as long as it drains well. The certain, you get the water off the clay. And clay, obviously, when it gets wet, it gets a little mushy. But firm clay soil can, can run ball pretty well, too. Um, but sandy soil is obviously the best. Because it's always going to be dry sure. and drains really well.
0: You mentioned Streamsong. What was uh, in Florida is is famous for being incredibly flat and uninteresting land for the most part. What was your reaction when you guys saw the land that was? That oh, it was it's unbelievable. Gonna, it's yeah. like, uh, you know, that was the last
1: project I ran. I worked for Ron or for Tom on, and uh, I remember driving there the first time, and you're, you're going through flat mining fields basically and pretty flat territory, and all of a sudden you get to this, you come over a hill, and you think you're in. Sand Hills in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when early on in construction, I had Ron Witten, Brad Klein, I had all the writers come by, and I always loved coming over the tenth hole of the the red course because our maintenance facility was there, and hearing the gasps in the back seat just go, "Oh my
0: gosh!" You know, where are we? Um, because it was wild i mean it was crazy a swamp. it was like i'm mean, not swamp but there was some wildlife out there the it was time, wildlife especially. you
1: know florida reclaims things pretty fast mm-hmm. you know because of the year-round vegetation growth so um it was an old mining site and they just plopped the dirt everywhere and had open pits and filled full of water and florida had gained you know mother nature mother nature had reclaimed the land pretty fast so what i always told people is like you remind me of the early pictures of pine valley if you look at the early early pictures of pine valley when there were no trees. It was lakes, vegetation, and sand, and that's what Streamsong looked like when we got there. Mm-hmm. And you know, Tom and Bill worked on the routing brilliantly together and, and separately, and then back together again, and milked the most out of that that landform that you know man-made but unique landform and twisted it into something
0: that could be natural. And You don't feel like it's man-made when you're there, no. definitely not.
1: No, because you know, because wind and nature had taken it over so it kind of softened the edges and um you know we utilized we know we moved we moved a bit bit of dirt on certain holes again Mm -hmm. um we disguised it but uh for the most part a lot of it was there and uh it's a pretty cool place
0: What uh, and then after that you said you mentioned that was the last project you worked on with Tom. You went out. What 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 encouraged you to want to go out on your own? Well,
1: um, like a year before, Jim Urbina and and Tom had part ways right after Old McDonald, and so I could kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. And the business was slowing down. Um, There wasn't a lot of new projects being done, and I'd always done probably the majority of the consulting work for Tom ever since. You know that was part of our deal when when he hired me. I'm like I still want to do consulting and restoration work, so he was fine. So I always did that on the side while I was running, you know, eighteen old projects where busy. So um, just before streams, I was pegged to run stream song, and, and just before that, he kind of came to me. He goes, "Man, he goes, I'm signing all these contracts. I don't even get to see these golf courses. You ever think about going on your own?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I could see, I could feel that coming." And I go, "This would be a great time." He goes, "Well, I was thinking the end of the year. I'm like, well, how about right now, just before I start stream song, and then I, you know, I'm still your rep." I get a contract with stream I'm working directly for them. They're funding my company for a while, and I get to do all the consulting work. And so it worked out perfect for both of us cut his payroll. I still ran project for him. Mm-hmm. So dear, good friends with them and see, you know, all the, all the guys on the crew are still my best friends. And, but I also got to start my company, uh, with a, with a basis of work. And then I took all the, you know, he says, take all your consulting with you. So I took all my clients with me. And so, uh, once stream song was done, even while it was being built, I was doing some bunker projects and rebuilding greens at clubs. So I already had a built-in business. So I've been happily and luckily busy ever since. I'm booked through like 2020 now. Wow. So I'm just steady. I'm just a one-man crew, and I do my own shaping. And uh, I just... Take on enough work where it keeps me busy and kind
0: of projects I like to work on. Awesome. Well, I won't take up any more of your time because I know you got an important project here at Timoquana that you're up here for. So Good. appreciate you taking an hour out of your day to, uh, to inform us on your background and whatnot. That was some great stories. Thanks for and having share. me. It's yeah, been fun that yeah. was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah. Be the right club. Be the right club today.
1: Yeah. Honey, yes. that's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most!